The Grim Drive podcast explores mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. Pro athletes come forward more and more with stories about their mental health journey, what they have endured, and how they manage to push through, reflecting a mental health stigma that continues to be reduced. Pro athletes also leverage mindset to achieve peak performance, as well as representing and often driving elements of popular culture through the use of social media, technology, and personal branding. This places athletes front and center as role models for people of all ages, giving them a platform to reach many and deliver important information, including information about mental health. Welcome to the Grim Drive Podcast, where we explore mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. My name is Jonathan Busfield. I'm here with my co-host, John Cuna. Today, we'll be discussing Justin Forsett and financial literacy. So there's several athletes we could have kind of chosen for this. Um, you know, there's, there's Marshawn Lynch. Mm-hmm. There's Gronk. I mean, there's, there's a, you know, you can go to like the higher level, you know, athletes like Magic Johnson or people like yeah. LeBron or yeah. like Michael Jordan, right? Yep. But we tried to find... Um, you know, we obviously didn't want to do. There's a lot of negative cautionary tales about like athletes that have lost all their money. Yeah, uh, we didn't really want to focus on that because we didn't feel like it'd be helpful. Um, you know, we want to focus on someone that has you know had a vision for how to um, you know use their own financial literacy to keep themselves in a good place in a way that we could use to kind of teach people about different elements of financial literacy. We chose Justin Forsett because I feel like he, you know, is kind of an underdog athlete, mm-hmm. but also had a vision pretty early on about what he wanted to do, separate from sports, which we're going to get to. Um, so we'll do a quick bio first. He's a Justin Forsett is a former football player in the NFL. He played running back. I uh, was drafted in the seventh round originally by the Seahawks, mm-hmm. uh, Seattle Seahawks, in 2008. He's most known for his time with the Baltimore Ravens. Um, I think his kind of best season was around 2014. Uh, I always align these things by by fantasy football stats. And that, that's kind of how I memorize these kinds of things. So um, he started a company with his two former uh, two former teammates that he had when he was playing at the University of California. He started a company with them. I think early on in his uh, in his NFL tenure, or maybe towards the end. So he started a company based on a product they they called the Shower Pill. That was eventually changed to um, I think they expanded their product line. So they called the company Hustle Clean which we'll get into. Um, we always try to fo- uh, feature some kind of like charitable organization. It was mm-hmm. kind of hard. They've worked with several. A bunch. And uh, some of the websites um, that that they've met, you know, the, the links to the websites of the companies that they say they've partnered with just didn't really work. So I, I, I put a link to their company. It's hustleclean.com because on their website, they actually fo- uh, talk about list the different, yeah, yeah, they list the different companies <laughs> they've partnered with. So I encourage anyone listening to check that out. Um, so in terms of, you know, our takeaways, you know, I think I'm going to start with one and then I'm going to kick it to you, John. I mean, the main, the main takeaway for me is just that, you know, Justin Forsett is this guy who is seventh round pick, uh, clearly an underdog, you know, he's, he's undersized, he's five, eight, 195 pounds. You know, he was, he references working out multiple times a day, just to be able to sustain his career, which he ended up lasting nine years in the mm-hmm. NFL, which for someone who's a seventh round pick undersized for the position of running back it's nine years time. is a long time to, to to last you have to be someone who maybe has a little bit of grim drive and is able to kind of outwork people mm-hmm. um he ended up making 11 plus million in his career which speaks to like how you know hard he worked to kind of keep himself in a good position where he got contracts um 
but it's someone who you know, the, I think the underdog piece is one of the main takeaways. He's someone who is willing to outwork people to get what he wants, and not just from a running back perspective. I think it also translates to his career post NFL. So, what, what was one of your key takeaways? Yeah, that was that was one a big one for me too. That the like the the one line that I always say like hard work works. He kind of fits that category, right? Like yeah. that that I'm an underdog, but it's not gonna not gonna you know hinder me from going out and doing what I want to mm-hmm. do. And you know when we were doing a lot of sort of the research for him, one of the quotes really stood out to me that I wanted to talk about. I felt like it really um, played into this. And he, he said, I always had to think about the end and what was next after football. And and I thought that that was, that's something that really, really stuck out to me because when I hear, unfortunately, when you hear the bad stories of people after who like went bankrupt or lost all their money or things like that, mm-hmm. you know, they talk about that in terms of, you know, the money that they were making in the NFL, the idea that like that's the money they're going to make for the rest of their life. And I think him having the mentality of this is a short period of my life comparatively, right? It's He got nine years, which I think you mentioned. I think that's the longer end of most professional mm-hmm. athletes spectrum. Most people aren't making top dollar for nine years. I think the average NFL career is like three and a half years. So, right, yeah. which is nothing, yeah. right, in terms of like year long, like how much money you're going to make for the rest of your life. Right. So I think that that really stood out to me because I don't know if that's the majority of thinking. I think it's probably shifting more in the last probably five years, but I um, that really stood out to me that his thinking from the very beginning was I'm going to work hard to, to, to continue to mm-hmm. play football. But I'm also very focused on what is my life going to look like once football is no longer a part of it. And yeah. I think that that's a really, really healthy way to try to look at it, especially in terms of financial literacy, which we're going to get into. Um, but that was something that really stood out to me. And, and and he said, I'm not sure, I tried to find the exact percentage where he got the information from, but he said that 80% of players two years out after they retire are either bankrupt, divorced, or depressed. And that really stood out to me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the 80% is like factual or not, but I imagine it's coming from somewhere. It's probably high. And it's say. probably yeah. really high. Yeah. And I think that, you know, even two years out, so if you, most NFL players, unless, you know, you're a freak like Tom Brady, 40 <laughs> is like the cutoff, right? Like you don't, you don't see a lot of people who are playing professional sport or professional football, especially past the age of 40, but that's past 30. Past, say. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And 30 years old is young, yeah, right? And then yeah. if you're thinking about like not making any any money after that, so like by mid 30s you're you're bankrupt and you're basically starting over again, for him to have the wherewithal and the understanding of like there is a life after football, I think was really a healthy way to think about. It. And that was something that really stood out to me. Yeah, I think fans need to take notice of that too cuz I think fans like look, he ma- he made 11 million. So that's like that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. But, you know, First of all, you got to factor in how much of that is taken out for taxes. Mm-hmm. Okay, you make eleven million, you don't take home eleven million, so it's probably mm-hmm. half that. If you're yeah. being realistic, then you have to cut out the agent and all the other things. So, it, look, he's still a millionaire, but I think he's one of the exceptions. A lot of these players, again, the average uh, NFL career is three and a half years. I think in the NBA, it's four and a half, uh, almost five years. You know, there, that's five years. You know, fans don't factor in that when you're done, like there's no guarantee of having any job as a coach or something else. I mean, you might have nothing else. Right. Right. So like this money has to last them and their family a very long time. So it's not realistic to say like, oh, you know, he's a million. This person's a millionaire for for life because they made two million dollars over the span of like uh, four years in the NFL. That has to last like forever. If you break that down into like 20 years, like, you know, it's they're they're not making a ton of money. Mm -hmm. So I think that's definitely something that stood out is that, you know, he. 
he was aware of that from the beginning and he had a vision. I think at, at the, it's interesting because there's like kind of like a, uh, a relationship between the position he played and how he looks at life after football, like running backs do well when they have vision, right? They have to have <laughs> a vision for how to hit the holes and where to go. Yep. Um, he was able to show that off the field as well. He had a vision from the get go. Like I'd, I'm not going to bank on football being the end all. I have to have other ideas. If not just for financial literacy and financial security, because he wanted to have something else that he's passionate about. One other quote that kind of stood out to me, you know, you mentioned that other quote. One other quote that I found interesting was that, uh, in addition to the one you mentioned, was that he said he he got more emotional getting news that that their product was going to be featured in Target than when he got drafted. And so I, I found that really cool because, like, for him, you know, he's finding other passions, right? From the beginning, he was looking for other things that he could be passionate about, so much so that that news of having a product featured in a store like Target was, like, you know, it, it was so important to him. How many times have we talked about athletes who the sport is their only passion and how risky that is and how, like, that leaves them so vulnerable when the sport ends because it's going to end for everybody, right? Father mm -hmm. time is undefeated it leaves them vulnerable to have other things happen. It's not just athletes either. I think it's, it's people in general. I, I think when you have one thing in your life that that's the only thing that could always be taken away in different ways. I think it's really good to have like, you know, I like to use the, the metaphor of like planting seeds, plant some seeds consistently. You know, not all of them are going to grow into anything. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are going to turn into nothing, but at least if you're planting seeds of interest or passion, you're going to have other things possibly developing in your, developing in your life. So that if the one thing you have is taken away for whatever reason, you're not left empty yeah right, with nothing else of purpose in your life i think he's a great example of that so he kind of saw a hole which again as running back is a skill he saw this hole that like with so many people so many periods of the day allotted to training he didn't always have time to shower before team meetings and he he sought something that would quickly treat hygiene so that's well like, it started out as the shower pill it's now called hustle clean but he developed that when he's still playing with the seattle seahawks he conceptualized this like body wipe it's a disposable antibacterial washcloth that removes sweat and body odor. Um, and then he commercially marketed that starting in 2014. So he was in the NFL still. Mm -hmm. uh, he founded that with his Cal Berkeley football teammates, Wendell Hunter and Whale Forrester. They generated more than $1 million in sales in 2019. Um, and their investors include Steve Smith, Jonathan Stewart. Those are both former uh, NFL players. I believe they were both on the Carolina Panthers, as well as Prince Amukamara, Cliff Averill and Ronnie Lott, also former football players. So he's got key investors. They made a million in sales in 2019. Um, this was the year after Shark Tank, right? Yeah. And I think Shark Tank was kind of a cool, it was a takeaway I had because I think it speaks to him embracing failure, right? And and how important, it wasn't a, I mean, it wasn't a total failure. Like I think being on Shark Tank got them notoriety. Exposure. Exposure. Yeah. But they kind of slipped up, right? I think they didn't get, um, I want to say so. Him and two, his two former teammates went on there, and they were seeking three hundred thousand for ten percent equity in their company. The Sharks quickly became like concerned um, because the business owners didn't understand the concept of net margins. So, as a in terms of like wanting to land a shark, uh, th th that was a failure. It still got the notoriety, but he kind of embraced it, and that was a key takeaway I had from it is that like he he wasn't deterred by failure. He viewed failure as a learning experience mm. and a way to get better. And to me. I think, I, I know I've seen this in my work. I know, I, I'm sure you probably have, but but how, I think people tend to view failure incorrectly. Hmm. Um, what do you think about that? Oh, yeah. Right, so it's like they, instead of viewing it as an opportunity, to me there's much more helpful information coming from a failure than from a success. I mean, if you're really able to separate yourself from the act, which we talk about a lot, 
if you're putting your self-worth on the line, anytime you fail, you are going to view yourself as a failure, which mm-hmm. is why it, it gets taken the wrong way by people. Yep. If you're able to separate yourself from the act, you can look at the act itself yeah. instead of you, your, yourself, and your right. worth. And when you look at the act, if you look at a failure, it's like, oh, I can see where I could have done that differently and I can learn from that and this could be changed. And that. There's so much valuable information right. in a failure. It's, help, yeah. it's what helps you get better. Absolutely. Your actions failed. You didn't. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Yeah, you as a person did you, not fail. Right. Like what you chose to do failed. And yeah. there's helpful information. If everything goes well, the example I like to give for young, you know, we work with a lot of young guys. For the young guys I work with, the example I like to give is, you know, if you're like – a sophomore in high school and you're good at basketball and I have you play against a bunch of seventh graders, it's going to feel great, right? You're going to just dominate and it's going to be amazing and you're going to feel amazing about yourself. Are you going to get better? No, you're not going to get better because you're playing against a competition that is way beneath you. If you're playing, if you're a sophomore and I have you playing against juniors and seniors, is it going to feel great on the surface? Probably not. You're going to get your ass kicked a little bit. Mm-hmm. But is that what's going to make you better? Absolutely. Yep. And I think you have to be able to to seek out those opportunities to fail as much as possible, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because it's gonna it's it's what's going to get you better. As long as you get your own like, ego out of it, yeah, you'll be able to grow as a person so much. If you're always just looking for the low hanging fruit, you're going to feel great. Your ego is going to be massaged every day, but you're not going to get better as a person. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yep. So. That was one thing that stood out to me is that uh, how they viewed failure and they kind of even get into like, um, you know, I think it's important to note like the whole net margin failure, right? Because I think that's something where like it's it's a little bit, so net margins are a little bit more relevant for like a product driven company than like a service driven company, but they are a product driven company yep. and you have to kind of know, you know, what your margins are in terms of the cost to make the product versus like what, what your you profit is. Yeah. yeah. And they didn't know that number and I think it's important um you know, if someone's going to invest, you need to know your numbers and that's mm-hmm. where they didn't. But it taught them like, hey, we got to know our stuff moving yep. forward if we want to get people to buy into this kind of thing. Yep. Um, any other takeaways for you? No, I think the, that that was really the the big one too because I think that's such a, the you know, a really a, a, a way of thinking about this that, that needs to be like switched and, and altered. And, you know, I know that you do a lot of work with financial literacy just in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it would, I'm really kind of curious in terms of like, what do you feel like would be a really good first step for our listeners to take towards like becoming financially literate? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I think uh, I like to to put it in terms of like four different steps. So maybe mm-hmm. I'll start with the first step and we'll kind of, um, you know, go from there. They don't have to be in order. I think they kind of, sure. to a degree they have to be, but you can kind of consider all of them. The first step I would say is like define your ideal situation, like the life you actually want to live. Um, and there, cause there's no wrong answer to this. And I think people often don't do that. They just say like, I, I just want to be rich or I want to be this or that. And they don't actually sit down and be like, all right, what, what do you really want? And be specific, like mm-hmm. really try to iron out like, you know, the details in terms of like, where, where do I want to live? What's the location or area? Do I want to own? Do I want to rent? There are benefits to both of those things. I think most people rush into home ownership, not knowing that if you're going to have to move or sell in the first five to seven years, your, your mortgage is interest loaded in the first, you know, five to seven years. And you're not, I mean, unless you're banking on that property appreciating in value, it's not necessarily an asset. Like it might be a liability. So I think sometimes renting is the way to go. I think a lot of people, their ego gets in the way and they want to buy a house because they feel like they're not good enough if they rent. And I think that can't, again, get the ego out. Just make the decision. Really try to understand where you want to live and why, 
why you want to own versus why you want to rent, which, which is better for you short and long term. Mm -hmm. Do you want to have a family with kids? Why do you want to have a family with kids? Like I think that's important to, to, uh, to figure out before you do it. The size of the house you want and why. Do you need a car? Do you really need a nice car? Do you need like a, you know, a car to get you from, from A to B and why? I think there's We've talked about this a lot in our personal life. I think it's important to like, you know, make decisions wisely about cars because, you know, cars, I think it's the biggest waste of money for most people. And yet it's, it's also a way to invest in yourself because if you're driving in something nice, that can add to your, um, to your overall well-being day to day too. So we'll get into that a little bit more, but, uh, vacations, where and how often age of retirement, you know, do you want to retire at an early age or do you want to wait till you're 65? Why? Like really try to figure these things out because there's no wrong answer. And it might change as you go, but at least have that starting place of like, all right, I got to figure out what I want for my life and why and try to understand that. And I think the reason why that's important is because subjective happiness actually isn't as tied to money as people think. I think there, um, you know, there's certain data out there. Like, well, I found one 2018 study from Purdue University that talks about the ideal outcome being $95,000 a year for life satisfaction, 60 to 75K for emotional well-being. And over 105k, 105 thousand dollars yep. a year, happiness decreases. Mm -hmm. I think that's really. I don't think a lot of people don't know that, but like this is financial literacy is really important to stress management and to overall wellness. I think um, for people to to get financially literate, understand finances, finances, get themselves to a place of financial freedom, ideally, because it removes stress when you're not making enough money to pay your bills or save some safety net of of money it puts you in a very vulnerable position and you're worried day to day, which increases stress and anxiety, which is bad for mental health and physical health. Mm -hmm. But past a certain point, I think most people think like, all right, so I have to make as much money as I can. That's not actually the answer. I mean, I think there's, uh, we could get into this all day about well, like why after 105K happiness goes down. Mm -hmm. Just to spout off quickly, I would guess it's because like, you know, um, you know, sometimes family and members and friends change how they treat you when you make over a certain amount of money. Yeah, it's true. Um, your lifestyle, sometimes it's easy for people to keep escalating their lifestyle. It's hard for them to downgrade. It's almost <laughs> like they, they're there. once they're there, it's hard. Yeah. It's like this, you got to keep upgrading and upgrading and upgrading. People feel like a failure when they downgrade. So that's, that's it. keeping up with appearances. I think it's hard for people to keep doing that. So I think there's a lot of reasons why, um, you know, over 105K, it leads to happiness going down. One probably being that it is relevant that when you're working your way up financially, Getting more money does equal less stress, but I think there's a it's a it's a bit of a catch twenty two because while that is relevant, if you latch onto that too much, then you make it your cure all, and you view money as like as long as I get to this yeah. point, it will fix everything, mm -hmm. and it gives you this expectation. We've talked about expectations a lot in the past. You expect that once I make you know two hundred thousand or five hundred thousand or whatever, all my problems will be solved, and I'll love myself effectively, and I'll be good. And that's just not how it works. And if you expect that, and then you get there, and you realize, oh shit, like I'm still the same person. Yeah, that's a huge letdown for people. And I think that's where a lot of people go wrong is that they they tie their happiness, their future happiness and well being, to getting to some number. Yeah, and then they get there, and they're like, oh, that did not change anything. It's a huge letdown. I, right? I totally agree, and I think that's a big difference. I think that's why your first point of like defining your ideal situation is so important because if you know the why you're going out and doing something, then you're not focused on the number. You're focused on what do I need to do what I want yeah. to do and why is it important? You want to have you want to have a family and you want to live a certain lifestyle to support that family. You need a specific number to be able to do that, right? In your in your head. And so it is interesting when we talk about this. And I bet we could spend hours and hours mm -hmm. and hours and hours talking about it. But I do feel like when when 
there seems to be like it's almost like a sin or like a like a bad word to say for people to say like I want to make a lot of money, mm-hmm. and I, and I think it's sort of like oh you know uh, they're shallow right yeah, it's like yeah. the first piece of like oh you're shallow or you're you know oh you're just you're just focused on money because you know money can't buy happiness and to a certain extent yeah I absolutely agree if it's the only thing that you're focused on yeah mm-hmm. absolutely you're gonna feel like you said you're gonna climb this ladder and realize it's up against the wrong wall because you you have no idea what actually makes you happy, mm-hmm. um, but I also think that it dramatically can increase your your level of safety and your level yep. of comfort and and to give what you're you know to be able to support the why of why you want to make a lot of money so yeah i i, I think that it, we get into these like pigeonholed conversations around money specifically like oh you make that amount of money or you want to make that money shallow boom you're off in this category mm-hmm. or like oh you you don't do this oh you're off in that category and i just don't see it as so static or so polar like has to be either or i, I, I yeah absolutely have both i don't see why i i totally agree and i, I think you know f- it, it, this is why there's no wrong answer right someone right. might be like i want to ma- you know they boil down this is why it's so important like boil down what you want out of life mm-hmm. first don't even think about what you want to make just say like what do i want to be able to do and then turn that kind of we talk about turning things into a process turn that into a process figure out what how does that break down what i want in terms of where i want to live the car i want to have uh, the vacations I want to take and where and how often and that kind of stuff, what does that cost on an annual basis, roughly? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then break that down into a monthly cost. And then you have an idea of how much money you probably need to make to support yourself yep. and, and get to that level. I think that's far less money than most people think. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. It's like it's different for every person. The other thing is I, I, I've long believed this. I think you do too. We've had talks about this. The whole idea that like work work your ass off till you're 65 and then retire, I think is ridiculous. <laughs> I just don't think, first of all, if you look at the statistics, people that retire often, you know, die earlier after they retire, right? They die quicker. Why is that? I, I would guess it's because their main purpose or passion or that kind of thing is gone now mm-hmm. with no plan. They just, the whole concept of like, I will work till I'm 65, then I'll sit on a beach Sounds great. And then you sit on a beach for 30 days straight and you're like, what the hell do I do now? Yeah, what do I do? You got to have some, that's where like, I think if you're, I know it's a cliche, but if you do what you love for a living, I don't feel like you ever feel like you're working a day in your life. Mm -hmm. I I do agree with that. I mean, I think we do this stuff that we're passionate about and it doesn't, you know, like we work hard. So there's times where it's like, wow, this is like, you know, (laughs) it's overwhelming and we need mental health day. We need to to take a personal break. But overall, it doesn't really feel like work because it's fascinating to us and we like, we like what we do. I think... I've always thought personally, and this is where it's up to each person to decide, I don't want to work till I'm 65 and then retire. I want to work. I wanted, I switched careers when I was in my mid twenties and I wanted to work my ass off, work twice as hard as, as probably most other people in a 10 year span and get myself to a position where I could, if I needed to take some time off and travel or do different things like that. I was financially secure enough to Mm -hmm. do that. That was my goal. Um, it doesn't mean that everyone else has to do that right. or that they're wrong if they do. <laughs> it's just that's – I identified that 10, year, 10, 11 years ago. I was like, this is what I want to do. I'm going to switch mm-hmm. careers and I'm passionate about this and this is what I want to do. And in 10 years or so, I want to be positioned where you know I can take vacations I want and I can – you know if, I, if my wife and I decide to have kids, I can be hands-on. That, like that was what's important to me. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's everyone decides what they want to do differently. And you know the best – what's the expression about like um, everyone – Mike Tyson's – quote always stuck with me everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face that is also relevant i think you have to be willing to like if life hits you you got to adapt a little bit too Mm -hmm. so i would encourage people again just define your own parameters about what you want out of life and break that down into like get specific with the things you want to do really concretely on an annual basis and then try to figure out all right how much money do i actually need to do this Mm because it's usually less than you think um so that's the first step 
The the second step is what I like to call track A versus track B. And this is like, you know, think of track A like the highway being built that's going to get you where you really want to get ultimately quicker. Track B is like the back roads you got to use to get to work while the highway is being built. Right? So there's kind of these like parallel tracks that are sort of being built at the same time or used at the same time. But track A requires a lot longer of a timeline to get what you want to get to get that highway where you're trying to go. Mm-hmm. Track B is like the nitty-gritty kind of stuff, right? And so I wanted to actually um, ask you because I, I have my – so I think track B is about like – Track A is the ideal, right? This is like, where do you want, I hate the five-year question, but like, mm-hmm. what's your ideal career track and why? Mm-hmm. And that's track A. And it's probably not going to happen for most people right away. You're talking like at least five, probably 10 or more years to make that track A kind of happen. It's still worth it. And you want to have that up there as like your main goal. Track B is like your nitty gritty, you know, side hustle or what are the, the jobs with a low hourly rate that I just got to do yep. to get out of debt and pay my bills and get me to the point where that track B converges closer to track A. Mm-hmm. And it's hard work uh, and it's not going to happen right away, but you got to do it. I want to ask you like first jobs always crack me up, like some of the, the worst jobs we've ever had like <laughs> coming up. Uh, yeah. I know I have mine. Do you yeah. have any that stick out to you, things you've done? Worst jobs? Yeah. Well, like, like most, most track B-ish kind of jobs where it's like you did it because you had to, and mm-hmm. it was worth it in the end, but it was probably kind of brutal while you were doing it. Yeah, uh, that would be my first job. I worked as a cash register for a pharmacy, and I had to do the stocking. I had to do cleaning the floors. I had to do Which like, pharmacy? all that stuff in Lexington, downtown Lexington, uh, okay, okay. Uh, Massachusetts, um, theater pharmacy. Okay, okay. And like I did, a sm- small town, kind of mom and pop Yeah, pharmacy, mom and pop right? shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think the same pharmacists have been working there for years. So uh, great place, great pharmacists, a great organization, but it was hard work. And for someone who struggled with math, and it was a register that like you had to do your own internal math, mm-hmm. I made a lot of mistakes. I also learned that newspapers don't come fully put together this was back i guess when newspapers yeah. were more of a thing um you had to, so i had to put every individual section together for like <laughs> hunt for like it felt like a hundred yeah. newspapers yep. and that was really really hard grindy like almost not meaningless because there was meaning to it but it was really really hard work for a long time but the the positivity that i pull mm. from that is the the concept of like you know I made really great relationships with the pharmacists. I made really great people relationships with people that came through the door like on a more frequent basis. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if I wasn't working really, really hard. And it gave me an understanding of like, there are going to be things that that was the reward part of it. But the back end work was really, really difficult Mm -hmm. to do. Um, And that was my first like real experience with like working really, really hard at something for like menial rewards. But I really tried to focus (laughs) in on like those things like that. But what about you? Oh man. So I, I I know I had a a paper route, which let's, let's use that with a grain of salt. Uh, (laughs) I had a paper route when I was probably like 11 or 12 and it, it really wasn't me having a paper route. My, my dad was doing it and like, hauling me out of bed at like 5 a.m. and I was mm-hmm. miserable and th- like he basically ended up doing it for a couple months and then got rid of it because he's like you're not gonna do what you need to do <laughs> it was an epic failure of a first yeah. job then I think my my real real first job was probably when I was like 14 I think I was I was screwing up and doing stupid things I probably shouldn't have been doing and my mother was like you're getting a job like uh, <laughs> enough of this I see where this is going you're getting a job she got me a job working with, for a carpet cleaning company I think that did our house house or something like that and it was it was hard. I mean, it was this like commercial carpet cleaning equipment Oof. that like you know heavy suctions to the ground, and yeah. it's like I was probably thirteen or fourteen, so I wasn't that strong or anything um, at that point. It was hard. It was hard work. 
I did that for probably six months, and then you know I think baseball started up, so I had to stop. Mm-hmm. But I had I had all kinds of things. I caddied from age. 14 to 18 every mm-hmm. every like spring and summer i would caddy at a private golf course so you get up on like saturdays and sundays at like 5 a.m and you go and you carry like two bags and you make it you know it's pretty good you make like 100 bucks 150 bucks yeah and i got a scholarship to college for that through like the we met fund it was like i think they gave me like 20 grand for college wow. so yeah uh, anyone listening who's young go caddy because you can yeah. get scholarships and you make decent money i worked in market basket uh stop and shop as a cashier market basket as like a stalker of shelves mm-hmm. um so it was, yeah, I did all kinds of that. I did painting for a lot of time in, in high school and or after high school and college. I did painting over the summers yep. and stuff. And I would say a lot of those jobs were, what they taught me was like the value of money and how nothing is given and hard work is, is it, you know, you have to work really hard to make even a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. And it, it, for me, the biggest lesson was like why school is so important. And I think, uh, you know, I, I kind of hated school in high school. Same. But it taught me that like, okay, you don't have to like school, but school is a means to an end. Like school is like the first track B in my opinion. Like mm-hmm. you don't have to like, you know, 90% of what you're learning, but you got to get that degree and at least put yourself in a position to be successful. And for me, working those jobs reminded me of that because it, and I have respect for anyone who works at those places for their career, right? I think work is work. I don't judge any career like it's less than something else. But yeah. I also started to pick up on like, I don't think I'll be happy doing this. And so that I can do what I want to do, mm-hmm. this motivates me to want to go work harder in these areas academically where yeah. I'm struggling and I need to just bust my ass a little bit more. You know yeah. what I mean? And I, I have a perfect example of that, of like knowing what I didn't want to do. As a, I want my my most recent job before I made the, the decision to come in to do um, therapy was mm-hmm. I was working for New York Life ins- uh, Insurance selling life and I, health insurance. I almost did insurance in between <laughs> architecture and this, yeah. Yeah, uh, so again, not judgment for people who choose to do that for full, for their for their lives. It was not the position or yeah. job for me. I worked there for probably about nine months um, and very quickly found out that sitting behind a desk talking to you know, most angry people calling at bad times and some, you know, 21 year old kid talking about the importance of protecting your family and why that's so important Mm -hmm. and why you need life and health insurance found out that that was like very much not what I wanted to do. Um, but it was really important for me to be able to, to struggle through that nine months because it, promoted me on to here of where yeah. I, where I am, where I'm at, able to sit in this chair talking onto a podcast. Now I wouldn't have been able, I wouldn't be here with, yeah. without that. And that, that level of hard work taught me what was necessary for, okay, if I, if I can work really hard at something that I don't like doing, what's the possibilities of working really hard at something that I do. Yeah. And that switch for me was what yep. promoted me to be here now. Uh, I think that's a great way to put it. And I, I think, you know, it, it really is key that people, you know, one one quote, I forget who said it, but it stands out to me is like people often overestimate what they can do in a day and underestimate what they can do in a year. I think that's absolutely true. Like you can't, you got to play the long game. You can't expect instant results, instant gratification in a week or a month. You got to set your sights on like that track A and then track B is a means to an end. It doesn't have to be the end. Mm-hmm. You got to view it as like, this is the grind. This is what it's going to afford me the right to have that track A career that I want. But it's not going to be easy. And you're going to have to do some shit that you don't want to do. I don't know how else to yep. put it. Like yep. you just have to. Yep. For anyone that's listening that wants some easy way out, that is not how stuff happens. It's not how success happens. You have to be able to to put in the, the grind on that track B. So identify your track track A and, and identify and use your track B to get there. Do not consider yourself above any job. Take what you can get mm-hmm. and just work harder than anybody else. That's really what it takes. Like mm-hmm. if, if you want it, but you can't expect results right away. So I think, 
I, I think having kind of a side hustle is important, right? You know, be willing to work multiple jobs to yep. get yourself to a, to a financially secure place. I think it's important to scale up slowly. What I mean by that is like, I, I, I've worked a lot. I've probably worked, you know, 80 hours a week for like the last 10 years. Again, I don't view it as work. I, I like what I do. Yeah. I love learning. I love reading. I love doing the stuff related to our field. So it doesn't feel like work to me. So I think the amount of hours worked per week doesn't really matter because it doesn't, it's not relevant if you mm-hmm. like what you're doing. But I, I also didn't start at that point. You know, when I was like switching careers, I was working as a bartender in between, which was probably the hardest job I've ever had. I worked in Harvard Square at a place called Upstairs on the Square. It was the hardest job I ever had. Uh, nothing compares to it. But it also, because of that, prepared me so much. But I didn't start by doing that like 80 hours a week. I mean, I was doing that 40, uh, 25 hours a week. And mm-hmm. then I got up to 40. And yeah. then eventually when I could get more shifts, I got up to 50. Mm-hmm. And I overlapped grad school. And you build slowly. Like we talk about that 20% rule, the zone of proximal development. You can't rush to like, you know, just absolutely crush yourself yeah, by yeah, doing 80 hours a week at yourself. one place yeah. right away. Like you got to scale up slowly with, mm-hmm. with most things. So I would say ease yourself into it, but but be willing to constantly push yourself in that 20% zone of growth. Yeah. Um, then I think it's important to set, set you got to set, in my opinion, you got to sacrifice a little bit of the short-term lifestyle stuff for your long-term goals. I, maybe there's a way to do it without doing that. I don't know what it is. I'll give you an example. Like Tree and I, when we got, my wife and I got married, we had roommates for like the first three years we were married. Hmm. Like, is that typical? No. Is that desirable? Probably not. But we knew that if we wanted to buy our first house, there's no way we could save up for a down payment and get that without saving some money. And mm-hmm. if you're living in Somerville or Cambridge or like, you know, greater Boston, like you have to pay high rents. So we, t- we took on roommates and in the first, you know, in the beginning, it was a bit of a shit show. We had some people that like, we'd <laughs> yeah. like to forget ever happened. Yeah. And then we ended up having, um, you know, people we lived with, uh, for the last like year and a half or two years who end up being lifelong friends. So mm-hmm. it worked out in many ways. Yeah. Uh, um, having roommates who split rent with you allows you to save money and then, um, you know, on rent and utilities and then you also make some friends. Right. So yep. Again, I don't. I don't consider myself above any job. I don't consider myself ab- above living with roommates. I mean, I think if if you want something, you have to make some sacrifices. So that's what stands out to me. Yeah, I mean, Allie and I, when we first got married, lived um, on the fourth floor of my mother in law's apartment yeah. in Jamaica Plain. Yeah. It was probably like four hundred square feet. Yeah. We she did a like a big renovation so that we could do that. But again, like not above it. I knew that yeah. this was going to be. Short-term piece, living with my mother-in-law, who was fabulous and really, really helped us out. But like you, I knew if we wanted to be able to buy a house and do the things that we wanted to do, blowing two grand living in Somerville, living it up, wasn't going to, for us, wasn't going to give us to where we wanted to go. And so we sort of sacrificed those few years of living in a place like that and being able to have that to living in maybe 400 square feet is being generous yeah. it's probably more like 300 square feet like this tiny little box above you know on the top floor but it it again it, it was the sacrifice that we were willing to put in so that we could put ourselves in a better position for the future yeah and it gives you the opportunity to live kind of where you want to right if you like if we didn't want to have a, a one bedroom as a couple because it would have been like 2500 dollars in or at that time probably two thousand dollars a month in yeah. somerville we found you know we wanted to live in somerville because it was close to where we worked and we didn't want to have to drive everywhere. So we found a place that was like 1800 a month, 1850 a month for three bedrooms and we split it with our roommates and it was a <laughs> fixer up like when we moved in it was it was a, a nightmare but I asked for permission to like uh, repaint and strip wallpaper and do all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. and I made it, you know, or Tree and I and our family members helped um, remake it into something that was really nice. 
um, so that when you moved in, it looked like it was eighteen hundred a month, and when we finished in a week or so, it looked like it was worth twenty five hundred or more mm-hmm. a month, and it gives you a nice place. So look for creative ways. I think it's important to like use your creativity to like cut corners a little bit and save yeah. a little money here, get yep. what you want there, and make sacrifices. So that mm-hmm. that track A, track B is something I do with clients a lot to really identify those two paths so that you can eventually get to track A, but you have a means to an end with track B. Yep. So. Uh, the third step, so again, the first step was um, you know, define, yeah. define what you want. Second step is understand your track A, track B, and how to use those parallel tracks to get what you want. The third step is educating yourself on financial literacy. So to me, I want to get into like types of learning and then a cut like um, credit scores and reports and then what to do and what not to do. So types of learning, when it comes to educating yourself on financial literacy, find books, right? I think the importance of self-driven learning like most people stop learning when they graduate high school or college. If they go to college, they stop after college. Mm-hmm. That's where I started. Like really where I started to buy into <laughs> so, learning is when same. I stopped architecture school and I realized, especially when I realized that career wasn't going to work out. I was like, I got I to gotta drive my own education. I got to be self-educated. I got to read everything I get my hands on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have to finish every book. This is one thing I got better at is that when you, my rule, I was always very stubborn and like perfectionist. I have to like finish a book if I start it. And it got me into trouble. It's like if you're 100 – similar to like therapy, right? If you're in four sessions in and you're not getting it, cut bait, switch, <laughs> so, yeah. right? I'm out. Books are the same way. If you're 100 pages in or 50 pages in and you're not feeling it, just – you do not – just because you started doesn't mean you have to finish that. Mm-hmm. Some things you want to push through. Other things, it's worth your time to just get rid of it and go yep. on to the next thing. Yep. Um, but reading is really important. One book that I always thought was great for financial literacy is a, is a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm-hmm. And it's not a, it's not like a perfect cure-all book. I, I've seen a lot of stuff on social media with people like complaining like this didn't, thing didn't make me rich. And it's like, look. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. And, and, and if, if anyone – and you see this in real estate a lot. If anyone says that with a book or with a program they're going to get you rich quick, you should be – you that's know. their version of how to get rich. Exactly. <laughs> Not for you. Yes, you are the product, yeah, right? right? So like, you know, that's a red flag. Um, and I don't think he does with that book. I think the, the book really tells you the difference between his kind of two dads, his biological dad, who was a professor and largely did everything the right way, getting a bunch of degrees and that kind of thing. But, you know, sort of ended life, didn't have much money, was in right. debt. And his friend's dad, who was kind of like his second dad, who taught him the ins and outs of business. I think he owned a grocery store and, and yep. this guy, the author worked there and he sh- he taught him about financial literacy and decision making yep. and things like that. I think it's a great place to start for people because it, it, it's an easy read. It's not that long. It's very quick. You mm-hmm. can probably read it in a day and it just gives you sort of a motivational uh, angle or perspective about financial awareness. Mm-hmm. Um and then everything in between, I think, uh, you know, I, I've read, you know, when Tree and I decided we wanted to look into buying real estate as an investment mode, I, I found like the top 20 to 30 books I could find on real estate and I read, read through all of them. I just got crushed all before I made any decisions and mm-hmm. we made any decisions. I read all that stuff to try to educate myself because it's hard to make a decision from a place of being uneducated on something. You have to like, right. you know, become aware. So whether it's real estate, books on business, leadership, emotional intelligence, marketing, sales, like we've we've read all those the kinds of kinds of things. And I think if people want to be financially literate, you have to educate yourself about that stuff. And sometimes books are one way to do it. There's also a board game that that uh, the guy who wrote that book called uh, wrote that book created, and the board game's called Cash Flow. It's like Monopoly on steroids a little bit, and it's uh, it's expensive. It's like seventy bucks, but it's a great board game in terms of like learning about financial literacy and decision-making. So I'd encourage everyone to check that out. Podcasts, I mean, podcasts have been so important to me from personal learning perspective because 
you can do it when you're doing other things. I'm a slow reader. I've gotten better at it. Yeah. But I'm very deliberate about how I read. So I'm, I'm less slow in the literal sense and more because I'm marking stuff up. Yeah, annotating. Right? Yeah, yeah. Same. Same. Um, so with podcasts and with audiobooks, it's great because I can when I'm walking my dog, I can listen to those kinds of things and and sometimes make mental notes. Or I'll usually walk around with like a a, a sticky notepad in my back pocket and a pen if in case I want to write stuff down. Yep. Um, podcasts are great. All you know, YouTube obviously has a ton of resources. Um, it's a bit of a tough landscape. It's hard to know. You know, you can get a lot of junk on YouTube that's not really good to pay attention to, and there's a lot of good resources too. So it's hard to decipher. Um, so that's types of learning. You want to educate yourself when it comes to financial literacy. Credit scores or reports, I think it's important for people to learn. Like, I don't know if we're always taught this growing up, but you have to educate yourself about how the credit system works. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get into it now necessarily because it's long-winded, but just do a quick online search. You can find some articles that like explain how credit works um, in terms of how you build credit versus how easily you can have credit kind of destroy. Yeah, Yeah. your credit destroyed. Um, So I'm going to get into, in terms of educating yourself on financial literacy, I have some to-dos and not to-dos that I'm going to go through real quick. Um, in terms of the stuff to do, I think it's important to kind of save, make your first priority saving six months worth of expenses, um, at least three, ideally six. That's what, what we did. Um, you know, before you're trying to build wealth or like do anything else, like you got to get yourself to a place where if something catastrophic happened, you'd have some reserves to keep yourself safe. I think mm-hmm. that's really important. That's what I would start with. Then I get into like kind of life hacking everything, right? Whether it's like, and my wife is like really good at this, like finding creative ways to save money on coffee or food or, you know, if you, you know, drink wine, like that kind of thing. Like there's creative ways to cut some corners so you're not like spending all your savings on that kind of stuff. Um, take advantage of credit card companies, not the other way around. Like this is really important. And it goes to that credit system in mm-hmm. terms of learning about that. If you know how to use the credit card system to your advantage, you can get free things and points and all kinds of stuff and your credit score is going to be high. And if you don't, they will be taking advantage Hell of yeah. you, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. uh, with high interest rates and, you know, the minimum monthly payment and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, right? Yep. Um, w- let's see. Another thing to learn, uh, to, something to do is learn how to say no. I think this is really important. I can't tell you. I don't know if it's just me, but I've worked with a lot of people who have like, they were building a little bit of a of a safety net and then four of their friends had destination weddings inside of a year. And all of a sudden, all their money is decimated because they spent $12,000 to travel to four different islands. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to go to friends' weddings. I think it's important to be present at things. I also think it's you have every right to say no at times to, mm-hmm. to take care of yourself if you feel like you have to. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it was like a whole phenomenon. I think like five years ago, it was more so. But like there was even articles written about it. I think it was one of the, I think it was in the Boston Globe how like, millennials can't buy homes because they're spending so much money on weddings, like yeah. th- their own wedding. But then it's like the bachelor party is now like a week long or the bachelorette is like a week long and the baby shower and all the, you know, the, 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 there's like all these different things that now people are spending a fortune on having to do. And mm-hmm. I, I, I agree with you. I think it's important to be there to support your friends. Um, especially if they were there to support, to support you, yeah. but not at the cost of your financial like livelihood or safety or pieces like that. I think, I think there are certain things that are sort of just like, yeah, you got to do like me personally. I think there's things like, yes, I'm going to have to just make this sacrifice and bite the bullet and figure it out. But you also can make some tough decisions about like, yeah, "Yeah, you know what? I want to be there for you, but this is just something that I can't do. I think it's okay to do that. And I think that your true support and friends will understand that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's about finding the line, right? right? Because I think for a lot of people, um, going to that, even if it means spending all their expendable income is worth it to them. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. And other times they might decide like, if I do this, I might put myself in a position where everything has to go perfect over the next year or else I'm in like seriously catastrophic right. financial uh, straits. So mm-hmm. it's important to just find that line. 
what to avoid or what not to do. I would say uh, credit cards as blank checks. I think our parents' generation was terrible with this. Terrible. Maybe not their fault because, like, yeah, you know, I think we cred- inherited a little bit of that. Yeah, you yeah. know, so uh, credit cards didn't even come out. I think until like, uh, was like Diners Club card was the first one. Mm-hmm. I want to say in the fifties or sixties. So yep. None of that. They're not uh, that old. I think our parents' generation just didn't know what they had. It's like swipe, swipe. Right. Yep. Um, so about it later. Don't use credit cards as blank checks. Learn how to game the credit card companies and their systems so that you get free things and points, not the other way around. Um, cars. I think this is a big one because I think if you're financially, if let's say you like, you know, have your six month nest eggs uh, saved and you're in a good place in terms of like you bought your first house or you know where you want to live and you're renting in a secure place and you decide that a car is going to add value to your life, fine. I think it's good. Um, I think most people, especially young guys, that's their first goal. Like they want, as soon as they like get out of college, they want to drop a ton of money on a car. And some people can pull it off. I think to me, it's the biggest liability a person can have because it immediately depreciates the second oh, yeah. you buy it. And it's only going to cost you more money for insurance and the monthly payments and Upkeep. the repairs and stuff like that. Yep. So I would say use caution with cars. There, there could be a benefit to buying one that you like because it can add value to your life personally, right? It could be like, I, I do th- I do believe in like, you know, dressing the way that makes you feel good and mm-hmm. riding in the car the way that makes you feel good because I do think it motivates you and it makes you feel good and comfortable in your life, which can, it's like an investment in yourself. Yeah. So I do think cars can do that, but it's about finding the line with this kind of stuff. Yep. Um, another not to do is living outside your means to impress people. Again, like yeah. that, that's just like a, a, a dead end road in my mm-hmm. opinion. Um, it's only going to leave you disappointed. Uh, and then obviously like, you know, alcohol, drugs, stuff like that. If you're wasting money on that kind of stuff, then uh, it's hard to save up money and put yourself in a good position. There's some things I would say that are on the line uh, between doing and not doing. Um, and I think that mainly that's like spending money on yourself. Sometimes that can be a waste and will like impact your ability to comp- have compound interest work in your favor. Right. But other times, like we said with the cars, it can be an investment in yourself, which actually helps you make money. Um, I do believe like at times the way you dress in cars can be like that. If it motivates you to work hard and, and accomplish your goals, then it's worth it. Yep. I also think like education and books, trainings, certain events, stuff like that, you're investing in yourself. That's always worth the money in my opinion. Yep. Um, so looking for ways to do that. So that's the third section is like the third step is educating yourself on financial literacy. And the fourth step is investing in compound interest. I'm not, I'm not a financial advisor, so I'm not going to sit here and educate people like I know everything I'm talking about when it comes to investment. Um, but I do think it's important to at least know the concept of compound interest and what that means. I mean, I think you can even go to like, um, Google search compound interest calculator and choose the money chimp option. We'll I'll even put the link to this one in the show notes, mm-hmm. but just play around with it. You can put in like the, the term, like 20 years you want to save with the average rate of growth. You know, I think the stock market, if you don't pull out when things are failing, tends to be six to 10% growth. So put in 6% or put in 10%, yep. that kind of thing. And then put in your initial starting amount. So let's say you want to start with $5,000 and you want to put 5000 in every year. So you put 5000 for starting amount, 5000 for annual contribution, 6% for you know in- interest growth, and then the term, 20 years, 30 years, whatever. And just play around with it. You'd be shocked at how oh, much money man. you can build in 20, 20 years, especially 30, because the 30-year the compounding, those last 10 years uh, mm-hmm. between eight, uh, years 21 and 30 is where you start to really make money. Um, because money starts to make money on itself if you let it do its thing. So that's why compounding interest, like educate yourself to what that means and get started early. Like every young guy I work with who's like 18 to 25, I try to at least oh. see if they're willing to, uh, if they're interested in getting educated about this a little bit in sessions because 
I'm not their financial advisor, but I do want to put them in touch with information that I wish I had known when I was 18 that no one taught me. Yeah. Right. It's the same. I I always say that like time is the only asset you can't get back. And when we're talking about compound interest, like you cannot get that 18 to 25 years back. And, but it, but if you do the math out of how much more money you could make, if you started doing the stuff now, like then look at, you can literally do the math and figure out what that's going to look like. And I think you, you start turning a lot of heads with people being like, Oh wow, I didn't realize I do that. Absolutely. You know, and you you start seeing some of the bigger numbers. I think it's, you know, like you said, we're not financial advisors, but I think just helping them to the place of like, this is something that you probably should be educating yourself about because nobody else is going to probably, yeah. you're not just going to like stumble upon a class that's going to tell you how to do this stuff or right. you're not, unless you're a business major or want to learn about this stuff, you're never going to do that. I don't know any program in public education that's teaching kids about how to save money or the importance of compound interest. Yeah. I think we could spend a whole episode talking about that. I think it's partly by design yep. um, that, that it's done that way. But I think, um, you know, that, that talking about these types of things is, valuable yeah no absolutely and i think in that book rich dad poor dad they kind of get into this a little bit about an example of like uh would you rather have one of two options would you rather work for a restaurant for a month and be given you know uh fifty thousand dollars right off the bat you get 50k you work for a month you're done or would you rather start work 30 days start with a penny but what you get paid doubles every day and everyone always says like i'll take 50k yeah (laughs) and it's like if you let compound interest do its thing one cent on day one turns into two cents on day two, turns into four cents on day three. And if you, I would, people write it out. Mm-hmm. You end up with like $10 million or something insane, maybe more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's compound interest. It starts to fold into itself and make money on itself um, because you let money do its thing. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to know that. I think inflation is an important concept to know as well. Like in general, it's like the de- inflation is the decline of purchasing power of any given currency over time. And this relates to bank accounts. Like, I mean, especially now when bank accounts have like what next to nothing in terms of interest they're giving. Yeah. 0.01, right. maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think the average rate of inflation is like 3%. And even good times, banks were giving like, what, 2% mm-hmm. in the last 10 years, I think. Right. So when you when you factor that in, if if your bank account is giving you 2% on your money and inflation is 3%, it means you're actually losing 1% mm-hmm. every year, right? Yep. That's important for people to remember. And I think um, understanding inflation, understanding the rate of return on an investment is re- very key. I'll give you an example from our life. Like we, Tree and I still had... Uh, student loan debt as of a couple of years ago, and the interest rate was like six and a half percent, which isn't great. It's not terrible. But mm-hmm. It's not not horrible either. It's not great, but it's not horrible. And we wanted to like we were fixated, like we want to pay that off. We want to like be debt student loan debt free, just so we could like say that to ourselves. And then we started looking around, and we're like, okay, or you know, we got educated on real estate, we're like, or we could invest in a multifamily property um, where we could have rent coming in. And the return on investment would probably be around 20 to 25%. Would I rather have the satisfaction of those student loans and make 6% by getting rid of those or make 20 to 25%? Right. And so I, def- you know, I kept paying the student loan monthly and we put our money into um, the real estate and it worked, right? Mm-hmm. That You get that rate of return back. It's important to, to understand some of these concepts so that when you're making decisions, you can factor in the you know uh, inflation uh compounding interest rate of return things like that mm-hmm. i think that's also that also relates to like good debt versus bad debt like credit card debt bad for the most part yeah. uh you know a mortgage is debt but it's kind of good debt as long as you don't over leverage yourself because you're allow you're using the bank's leverage to be able to like you know get the house you want or make money on a real yeah. estate well, property. Yeah, you can pull out your own equity and spend it on and do all that. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes even credit card debt is not terrible if you're using it. Like if you, I, I know when Tree and I were trying to get out of debt, um, we used ba- uh, credit um, like balance transfers. So you take, let's say, I have ten thousand with one credit card. 
uh, and I have to pay a ton of money every month because of the interest, you can do a balance transfer to like a different credit card company. And what they do is they give you a year of no interest. Typically, you pay a fee off the bat, like a 3% fee off the bat to transfer it. And then you grant yourself 12 months to pay that off before the interest, interest kicks in. Yeah. I'll take that 3% with a zero interest year to pay it all off Versus over the 25% or 30%, 30 interest, interest rate that that yeah. card's currently charging me. Mm -hmm. um, you can use those strategically to get out of debt. So if people are trying to get out of debt, use those instruments to kind of pull yourself out of debt and then understand the difference between good debt and bad debt. Right. Um, so that was a lot. Uh, Long-winded, but that, those are my four steps. Um, you know, Again, the first step is define what you want. Uh, the second step is track A versus track B. Third step is educate yourself on financial literacy in any means possible. And the fourth step is understand, you know, the importance of compound interest in different financial kind of terms and things like that. Yeah. Um, any, any thoughts on that? No, I think it's a great way to kind of like list things through all the way through. And as I was, I was sort of listening to some of the stuff that you had said, like the first one is just like identify like the what and the why, and then you get into the how. And I think it's a really great way to kind of progress. And I think, you know, we're going to do future session, future episodes, I think on, on this stuff because I think it's really valuable and it's a massive hole in, in education for everybody. Um, it's almost like a hidden secret, but it's not a secret. It's widely knowledgeable, yeah, widely, yeah. widely available. We want to try to have more conversations about this. Cause I think that people need, need more of it for sure. Absolutely. Um, so there was one, what were a couple things I want to plug, um, real quick with regard to financial literacy. Um, you know, one is this, this, this website called goalsetter.co. And that is a entirely black and female-owned company, and um, they, it's an app basically that helps people plan for financial freedom. So I want people to check that out because I think anytime you can use technology or use an app or some helpful tool to your advantage, do it. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about um, a guy we've talked to. His name's Malcolm Lemons. Uh, he has a podcast called Athletes Unheard, and more important than the podcast is like a pl the platform of yeah. Athletes Unheard, which it's is a great really place to be. Um, you know, it's, it features athletes and their journey and their experience and their talk. I mean, obviously we started this podcast to reflect on athlete experiences. Yep. He's, you know, really featuring the athletes themselves and actually getting their voice, yep. which is so cool. Yeah. Um, so I want to plug, you know, the athletes unheard people check that out. And then his first episode was with, with a guy named, uh, Amobi Okugo. I'm hope, hopefully, you know, pronouncing that name correctly. He was a former professional soccer athlete, I believe. And he has a website called the frugal or a frugal athlete, which is for athletes learning about financial literacy and how to be smart with their money. So I just want to plug those kinds of things. Um, so before we end for today, I just want to encourage anyone listening again, go to our YouTube channel and subscribe uh, to the Grim Drive podcast on YouTube. We're trying to get to 100 subscribers so we can have our own custom URL. We really appreciate any help on that. Um, that's it for today for the episode on Justin Forsett and financial literacy. We will be back next week to talk about Simone Biles and mental fitness.